So friends, let me invite you to turn in your copy of the word to Genesis 25. <coughs> I will apologize in advance for a few more coughs. May not be quite as perky as usual. For some of y'all, that'd be a good thing. Uh, for others, uh, you may miss it. So probably next week I'll be back at uh, full strength. But uh, we, we come to a pretty important point in our study in uh, the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. We come to a turning point uh, this morning. We come to the death of Abraham and uh, the story of Isaac and then uh, Esau and Jacob. So let me invite you to turn to the 20th chapter of Genesis, and uh, I'll read the whole of the chapter. Let me again remind you that this is God's holy and errant word. It's powerful. Let me remind you that we are to receive it with faith. Store it up in your hearts to, to hope that something would happen when the word is read. Let me encourage you to actually think that. You'll find that surprisingly it happens. So we'll begin here. From Moses and the Lord, Genesis 25. Let's hear God's word. We're told Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Yokshan, Medin, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Yokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Lemim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Efer, Chenok, Abidah, and Elda'ah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Be'er Lahai Ra. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishmah, Dumah, Masah, Hadad, Timah, Yatur, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael. These are their names, but their villages and their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael. 137 years, he breathed last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria, he settled over against all his kinsmen. These are gener generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children crashed together within her and she said if it is thus why is this happening to me so she went to inquire of the lord and the lord said to her two nations are in your womb 
and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, look, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. They called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore him. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red, red stuff for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of our God doth neither. It endures forever. Let's pray. Ask God's enduring word to bless our lives this morning. Well, Father, we come to you. <clears throat> Help us to see that we are not special as we come to you. Not in ourselves. We are not smarter or better than other people. We are not holier than you and not holier than others in ourselves. Help us see that you set your love upon your people. And we love you for it all the more. Praying this in Christ's name. Amen. We live in a world, don't we, that uh, loves individuals. We live in a world that prizes me, myself, I. We live in a nation, we live in a time that, that loves to talk about the self. Individual achievement. We love, you love, don't you? You love watching the Olympics and seeing that person break the record. It's great they're American, of course, but you love just watching individual achievement. You love it when the guy catches the ball. We love when people go from rags to riches. You love it when you work hard and you're rewarded. You get promoted. You despise it. We despise things, mostly in the South. We usually despise things like nepotism. We don't like the good old boys club, usually. We don't like it when somebody gets a job because their daddy was so-and-so. We love people who can do things, who can achieve, who can work hard. We don't like folks who are born with a silver spoon in their mouth. We're not Britain, right? That's why we rebelled against them. That's why there was a revolution. A lot of this has to do with how our country was founded against the principles of aristocracy. We value merit. We want to pull ourselves up from nothing. That's why still we love the story of Andrew Carnegie. You know Andrew Carnegie. He kept his first dollar bill he ever earned on a plaque. And he said, that dollar bill led me to be a millionaire. You love that. We love the feel-good stories. That affects how we read the Bible, you know. What you think as a kind of American, what you think even as a Christian, we love the celebrities. This is why whenever you hear a, an athlete or a musician 
<clears throat> or a movie star say, I believe in God. Oh, I want to hear what they have to say. They're way more important than anybody else in my life. They believe in God and they won the World Series, Super Bowl, whatever you like. Wow, they must be important. I want to watch their movies. <clears throat> and so that's how we read the Bible, isn't it? God must see what the good people will do. And he calls them Christians. All right. God must see what I've done as a good Christian and reward me for it. He must see that I've made the right choice. I'm in church on Sunday morning in 2022. Therefore, God loves me. That's how we tend to think. I'm doing the right thing. Is that how Jesus works, though? Is that actually how the Bible tells us life works? Is life, when it comes to your soul, a game of merit, earning, achieving? Or do we find this morning a different system in play, a different kind of God in play? When we come this morning, uh, you'll see here, uh, if you want to outline, I'll give it to you. It's very simple, very easy outline. We'll look first at God's choice, then we'll look at man's choice. God's choice, human choice. Simple, right? God's choice, human choice. We'll look first here at God's choice. We have opening uh, verse here. Look there. Uh, Verse 1, Abraham gets another wife. He gets a lot of kids. Verse 2, we're told about the children. We're told in verse 5, he gives all that he has to Isaac. He sends away the sons of his concubines. Eventually, of course, uh, we come to verse 7, and here's the real issue. Abraham... He's dying. He's dead now, in fact. Not just dying. He's gone. The great patriarch, the father of the faith, the one to whom all the promises have been given. He's gone. And we're told that uh, he lived 175 years. He had a long life. God had blessed Abraham with a long life. He blessed him with children. He blessed him with many nations starting to appear. We see here that God has said, I will do this, and he's starting to do it. He's starting to do it. So we come to the transition now. Abraham's dead. His son Isaac takes over. Isaac won't have a lot of time in the Bible story, in the son of Scripture, but uh, he'll have a little bit of time. And yet, before we get to Isaac, we find, beginning in verse 12, we find the uh, genealogy of Ishmael. Well, the genealogy of the other kid, the other son of Abraham, not the promised one. We're told his story. It's very similar to a lot of genealogies. He had 12 kids, and eventually he begat so-and-so, and they went and they lived in these areas. What's the point of this? The point of this, again, is to tell you that God's been doing what he has said he will do. God had even promised to Ishmael the bad kid, not the promised one, not the special one. He had promised to Ishmael, I will make of you a great nation. And he's doing it. Even with those who don't follow him, God keeps his word. God keeps his promise. God blesses in so many ways many of your neighbors. You know that. God, God does that. But we come to the meat of our story this morning beginning really in verse 19. We come to Isaac. There's a problem here. There's a problem here because we're told, here are Isaac's generations. 
Here's his family history. And we expect there to be a long list of names that you don't know and I don't know. A long list of boring names on and on and on. But we don't get that. We get a story instead. That tells you that something's going on here. Something is happening here. We get a story that tells us about these two kids, Esau and Jacob. But before the story appears, look at verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. That's deja vu all over again. This issue of barrenness, this issue, this problem that took up so much of Abraham's story. Remember Abraham and Sarah, they couldn't have a kid. The roller coaster of emotions, the sins and trying to fix it, the solutions that didn't work. Eventually God gave Isaac. But notice this story. Same problem, but what happens? Verse 21, Isaac prays, God answers his prayer. Pretty cut and dry. Only later you're going to find out that takes 20 years. 20 years pass in that one verse. 20 years, Isaac and Rebecca don't have kids. 20 years, they're barren. And yet the focus is not on the barrenness. The focus is on which kid. The focus is on which child is going to be the hero. Which child is going to be the good kid? And the problem starts in this womb. And we look at verse 21, verse 22. The Lord granted his prayer. Rebecca, his wife, Isaac's wife, conceived. And then verse 22 says this. The children struggled together within her. The problem starts in the womb. The English translation there kind of mellows out the battle. It makes it nicer. There's a struggle. No, literally, the twins are crashing. They're crashing into one another. It's violent, all-out war. The same verb is used in the book of Judges when Abimelech, the evil judge, is killed by a millstone that crashes on his head from a, from a second-story window. War in the womb. So strong that Rebecca cries out, literally, why this am I? It's a way of saying, why am I going through all this? What's happening to me? I thought you were going to answer my prayer, God. I thought you've given uh, conception to me. Why is this happening to me? But notice again her reaction. So she went to inquire of the Lord. Do you see here? Both Isaac and Rebecca in despair, in struggle. What is their reaction? The reaction is prayer. It's a very simple reaction. In their struggle, they pray. And what's your reaction? In your struggle, in your calamity, when things don't go your way, what do you do? Do you go to inquire of the Lord? Do you go in prayer or do you try to fix it? Try to solve the problem? Do you complain? Notice what they do. They go to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord gives an oracle. The Lord responds. He says, okay, let me tell you what's going on here. You want to know, Rebecca? Here's what's happening. Verse 23. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, part of this sounds okay, right? There's uh, one kid better than another kid. That's to be expected. We all know, everybody knows, even in our day, that the oldest son, the oldest child, kind of gets the reward. They, they get the privilege. They're the firstborn. It was so much more in that case, that iron law of primogeniture that I've discussed before. But then God says at the very end of this prophecy, the older shall serve 
the younger. This is shocking. I don't know if you understand how shocking this is. This is incredible. Everything is upside down here. In the ancient world, it's always the firstborn, always the oldest, always the most responsible, always the most of the inheritance. And if this is God's family, obviously the oldest one's the right one. Obviously, that's the best one. But God says, no, I upset cultural convention. I upset your human expectations. I don't follow common order. Instead, he says there's a war going on here. There's a battle going on in the very womb of Rebecca. A war is happening. A victor is chosen. What kind of war is this? It's the war that if you've been reading along the book of Genesis, you should remember. It's the war that's been happening ever since the first creation story. The Garden of Eden, the promise made by God back in Genesis chapter 3. That the serpent and the kids of the serpent and the seed of the woman would be at battle. They'd be fighting. The kids of the evil one, that great dragon Satan and the children of God would be at war. We've seen it with Cain and Abel. Noah's sons. Joseph, his brothers, we'll see in the future. Brothers fight each other in the book of Genesis. That's what happens. This is part of that war. And notice the very simple fact. Both kids are from Rebecca. Both kids are from the godly mom. Both kids are from Christian parents. Both kids are in the family of promise. But one is Satan's kid and the other is the promise hero. Only one, not both. You see, parents, of course, part of the lesson here that it's possible to have children in the most godliest of households, to have children literally in the line of promise. And yet, one of them be a child of the dragon. It is a simple fact, friends, that there is a huge chasm between the people of God and the people of Satan. Simple fact in the world. That's the reason, by the way, Whenever you claim the name of Christ at your work, whenever you say, yes, I go to church, and people ask, what are you doing Sunday? Aren't you snoozing? Aren't you going to mow your lawn? Aren't you kind of playing, you know, ball? Aren't you just going to relax? And you say, no, I'm going to church. And people say, well, why? That's stupid. It's just Saturday, right? Again, you get two Saturdays. That's the way so many people live today. That's the way you're tempted to live today. Hang out. Cool your jets. But you say, no, no, I'm going to church. And some people say, well, why? It's what Christ says in Matthew 10, 24. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Not come to bring peace. There's opposition. God ordains opposition. He ordains this conflict. And notice, by the way, that in this prophecy, another very basic point. God's already picked the winner. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. We've heard nothing about these kids. Zero. We've not heard their names. We've not heard who, who, what they look like. We've not heard their character. We are given no insight into them. Before you know anything about them, the author says God has chosen one. God does it. Before they showed a good character virtue or a bad vice, before they had a selfish thought or a selfless thought, God said, I will put enmity. It's that scary part of the New Testament that we don't like to read sometimes. It's Romans chapter 9. 
where Paul gives the New Testament interpretation of this very chapter, this very story. Though they were not yet born, had done nothing good or bad, Rebecca was told, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate. That's a hard story, friends. Challenging words to hear. Goes against every fiber of our being, every American grain that we have in us, everything that says you need to earn God's love. And you have because you made the right choices in life. You're just smarter. You're just better looking. You're just harder working. You're just more clever, aren't you? God does not look at Jacob and say, I know Jacob. He's going to be a good guy. He's not. By the way, God did not look at Jacob and say, I know he won't be like Esau with that whole stew issue. Long before Jacob did anything good or bad, God calls him. Moreover, notice who God calls. He does not choose the most qualified one. Esau at least has the priority of being the oldest kid. He has the priority of being the one that you put all the family income behind. They didn't have the mind to dole it out to 10 kids. They had to focus on the firstborn to keep the family land, to keep the family money. And God says, no, I'm going to choose the least qualified one. I'm going to choose the worst possible one. I'm going to choose the younger one who has no right, no cultural right, no social right, no familial right. God chooses contrary to all human custom. God overturns human expectations. It's what he loves to do. Do you know your God loves to shock you? That God truly is a shock jock in the best way possible. He loves, he loves to amaze you. He loves to astound you. He did it with Cain and Abel. He chose Abel, not Cain. He did it with Seth. He did it with Isaac, not Ishmael. He'll do it again with Joseph, not his brothers. The older will serve the younger. It's the pattern throughout Genesis. And God is showing, I do. I choose. I choose in a way that you would never expect. I am surprising. Is this the kind of God you come to worship, friends? Or do you come to worship a very safe and stable God? Does your God ever shock you? Does your God ever go outside your lines? Does he color outside the lines of your faith? Here we see yet again, over and over and over, that grace is truly amazing. We sing it, right? We sing amazing grace. We may even intellectually say we believe in amazing grace. But do we love the God who continually delights in amazing us and bringing into his kingdom people that you would not bring in? You wouldn't bring in the kind of people God. I wouldn't either. I wouldn't either. That's why, friends, you should never fall for the lie that God's boring, that being a Christian is a dull affair, that, well, you can't really have any fun with God. You don't see here that God, in his marvelous grace, is far more astounding than you can ever imagine. I mean, think about it. I know you have friends. I know you have family members that that you would not, you'd prefer if they weren't a Christian because they say dumb things. Right? You prefer if they were not a Christian because they, they don't they don't Christian well. But they are Christian. Somehow God's put his love on them. Somehow they've been attracted to Christ. And it happened. Has God done that in your life? Has God done that with your friends? 
those black sheep in your family that you thought would never come to Christ, would never know his name. Well, they've done it. I know some of y'all have the stories like that because God loves to overturn your expectations. That's what the Bible says. He does more than all we can ask or imagine. That's God's choice. Secondly, see here, human choice, beginning in verse 27. So we know here, verse 24, really, we know, we know the winner. We know the winner is going to be Jacob, but we get a little picture of the two kids. Contestant number one, verse 25, Esau, he's born first. We're told that he's hairy and red. That may not sound really attractive to you. Uh, not many of us are genders here. May not be very, very attractive to be red-haired. May not be very attractive to be hairy. But in the ancient world, this was the epitome of studliness. This was the epitome of somebody who was attractive. That's why Elijah, for example, the prophet, is seen as more powerful than bald Elisha. Hairiness means that you were strong. We also learn that Esau, verse 27, likes to hunt. He kills meat. He's a man of a field. Put all that together, what do you get? What's the kind of picture that should be in our minds? Well, we hear nothing about Esau's character. Notice that the, 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 the author, Moses does not give us anything about the character of this guy. It solely focuses on the classic American qualities. What do you do? What's your job? What do you look like? Surface level, purely surface level. And as you look at that, what kind of guy is he? He's a hairy guy. He hunts beast. He is a wrestler. He is a monster. This is not just window dressing. This, this is describing and affecting all that Esau does. The picture here is of someone who does not live up to the glory of God's image in him. But a man who lives down to the level of the animals, he is like a wild beast. Then we get Jacob. Number two, we get Jacob. We're told uh, no physical picture. We're told simply of his actions. First, we learn, verse 26, he holds on to the heel of his brother Esau. He's actually named heel. That's Jacob. He's tenacious. Second, we're told, verse 27, he is a, quote, quiet man who lives in the tents. Now, I cannot tell you how many uh, men's groups and men's retreats have built a whole kind of made-up theology on this basis of verse 27 here. Esau's the man's man. Jacob's the girlie's mama's boy. Very passive. Esau's very active. That's not the picture we actually get, though. This word quiet here does not mean passive. It means peaceful. It means calm. It means mature. It's only used in a positive sense in the New Testament. Never neutral, never negative, always a positive character trait. For example, Noah is called quiet. Now the ESV translated it as righteous. Job is called the same, noble. So the point is that Jacob is not a mama's boy, but he is a mature guy. Why is he living in the tents? Not because he likes houses, but because he's taking care of the flocks. This is not a, a guy who's playing with the green egg. It's not a guy who's baking with mom. He is a shepherd like David. He is caring for the animals. And you see here, 
that their parents show us more of their character. Verse 28. We get the picture of Jacob, the picture of Esau, a little bit of their character, and then we get a little insight in their parents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac loved Esau. Why does Isaac love Esau? He has tummy love for Esau, you might say. He has food love. He loves the steaks. He loves the hamburgers. He loves the meat that Esau brings home. Isaac says, the boy brings home wild game. I get to eat it. It delights me physically. Therefore, I set my affection on him. Notice that Rebecca also loves a son, the other son. Rebecca loves Jacob. We get no explanation why. No reason why. Why does Rebecca love Jacob? There has only been one reason given in this text as to why Jacob should be loved. Only one reason. Because God has set his love on Jacob. Why does Rebecca love Jacob? She knows that Jacob is the promised one. She knows that he is favored by God. Her attitude, her love is based upon God's love. And I mention that because there have been so many sermons that use this one verse, just like they used the verse before it, and say, look at what happens, mom and dad, when you play favorites. Don't play favorites. Dysfunction occurs. Isaac loves Esau. Rebecca loves Jacob. Oh, so the problems come out because of that. Rebellious kids go every which way. Bad things happen. Don't be like Isaac or Rebecca. Now, there may be plenty of dysfunction. That may actually be a point in later chapters, such as with Leah and Rachel and Joseph. But it's not the point here. It's not the way the text reasons. The author does not see Rebecca as sinning because her attitude reflects God's attitude. Jacob I loved. She aligns herself not with the tummy, not with her physical, not with what looks good on the outside. Esau's attractive, he's handsome, he's beautiful. He gets food, but she aligns herself with the promise of God. Why is there conflict here? Why is there dysfunction in the family? Not because Rebecca's sinning, but because of the war between the two seeds, the battle between Satan and his kids and God and his kids. Isaac looks at what he sees. I love Esau's steak. The merit of Esau is better than Jacob because I want my hamburger. How does Rebecca look at things? She views things spiritually. She looks. All she has is the promise of God. All she has is the promise of God. And how does she view things? She says, yes, I'll take that. She trusts in the word of God. And I suppose the question for you is, obviously for parents, how do you see your kids? But I suppose really for all of us, how do you see your life? Whether you have kids or not, whether you're a mom or dad or you're just a person, how do you see life? Where do you look to to bestow your love? Are you putting your love upon the things of this world? Are you prioritizing the things of this world? Is that what you like? You have tummy love or eye love or ear love. In fact, the Apostle Paul will say in the book of Galatians that our love ought to come from our ears. As Luther pointed out, right, we have a gospel that comes by faith. We have a gospel that speaks to the ear, not to the eye primarily. 
And so many of us, friends, are the kind of people who love Esau's. We love the people who bring us stuff. We love the folks who seal the deals. We love the people who say, boy, you're doing a great job. You're looking awesome. You're having a great family. You're doing well in life. Keep at it. We love people who do that. But what does Rebecca love? Rebecca loves what God loves. So I suppose, friends, what do you love? Why do you love it? Do you love Christ for who he is, for all that he gives, even if you can't see the immediate instantaneous feedback, even if you don't get a good sense of the payoff immediately? But do you look to the promise, even if that's all you have? That's all you have. Well, we get one last uh, little taste of the character of these kids. We get a story, famous story, classic story. Verse 29, Esau's been out hunting. Long day. He's been getting the game. He comes home. He's starving. He shouts to his brother. He sees something cooking. He wants a meal. Our translations tell us it's some red stew to eat. It's not quite the way Esau talks here. That makes him a a nice, kind of just a tired guy. No, 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 no. The word he uses for eat in verse 30 is never used in the Bible elsewhere. It is used by the rabbis in the Jewish Mishnah. And the rabbis use this word for the way animals eat their prey and devour their prey. Now, at my home, we have no need to buy a paper shredder. Do you know why we don't need a paper shredder? Because we have a dog. Our dog loves to rip paper. If you want to help me out, you can bring some paper. You You can watch her. We never need to rip up, rip up any receipts. I just put them on the floor, and what happens? She goes to work. It's adorable until you look at how she rips apart the paper. It's intense. It's vicious. She goes after it with a passion. She rips it to shreds, literally. Vicious, brutal. You see, Esau is asking the way my dog asks for paper. He's asking for stew the way animal would ask. And actually, he's not asking for stew. Literally, he says, verse 30, let me eat some of that red red. That doesn't make any sense to you, does it? But in Hebrew, it's very common to emphasize me by repeating it. Classic example. In the Garden of Eden, God curses and God says, the day you eat of the fruit, you will die, die. I mean, you really die. Well, here he was saying, uh, that, that red, red stuff, I need it. Give it to me now. He's a caveman, you see here. Esau has degraded himself to the position of a caveman. He just wants to cram fast food down his gullet as quick as possible. He is driven completely by his appetites. He is not a man driven by any thought of other people, by any thought of God. He is operating on instinct like a brute beast. He has one thing on his mind, food. And Jacob also has one thing on his mind. See what he has on his mind? Birthright. Verse 31. Sell me your birthright now. I'll give you food, sure. Give me your birthright. Esau replies, literally, if I leave, I die. If I leave, I'm dead. What use is a birthright to me? And Jacob pushes. He presses where it hurts. He says, swear to me now. Single-minded. All right, I'll give it to you. Swear to me now. Give me your 
birthright. You see Esau's heart exposed? Esau, like Isaac, Esau's heart exposed here. What use is some pie in the sky, vague spiritual promise when I have red, red stuff right in front of my face to gorge on? I see it. It looks good. I want it. I need it. I don't care about God. I don't care about anything else. I have desires that have to be met. That's just who I am. I have to fulfill whatever my desires say. Don't give me something in the great beyond, some some, uh, vague, impractical, irrelevant thing. I need present comfort. Esau says, take God's promises all you want. I don't need them. He throws away, as the New Testament tells us, the whole of his inheritance for some lentils. One commentator writes, Esau shows in his actions that he is unfit for divine election. He shows in his actions that he is unfit for divine election. He's not worthy to inherit God. He is just like Adam, an animal, a beast, not a glorious image bearer, not someone reflecting God, but someone reflecting the ground. He is willing to trade his inheritance. He is the son of Adam. He has no right to inherit God's promises. He is like many that you meet, and perhaps he is like even you yourself today. He looks at life by what he sees, and he judges it. Why do I need to go to church? Why do I need Jesus? I don't need Jesus. I got food. I got drink. I got money. I got sex. I got a job. I got things to do. I got important things to do. Those satisfy me. What do I care about the future? The future is irrelevant. And so what do you and I do? We act like animals, trade away our inheritance. Notice, by the way, that Esau got what he wanted. Verse 34, Esau ate and drank and rose and went his way. He willed it. Esau chose it. It happened. He departed from a God he did not love and a God he did not want. Notice that God did not have to violate Esau's will. He did not have to kind of force the robot Esau down a different direction. He did not pull any puppet strings here. Yes, God chose Jacob, but God didn't have to do anything for Esau to despise him and reject his inheritance. Esau already had no desire for God's promise. That's why, friends, it's not really amazing that that the Bible tells us that God hated Esau. It makes sense. Look at this guy. He's a caveman. He doesn't want, he, he rejects the promises of God. It's not unusual. But where is the surprise here? Where is the amazing part of this story? Friends, the amazing part of this story is that God set his love on Jacob. The amazing part of the story is that God set his love on Jacob, of someone who would fail him over and over again, that even after this, he would continue to fail, he would deceive, he would betray God. This one who in his nature would never follow God, would kick against God. This one, God said, Jacob, I love. Because God set his love on Jacob, one born in sin. Jacob's nature will differ from Ethan. That's it. That's the only reason. It's not because Jacob's good. It's not because he is attractive. It's not because he's amazing. God will shape Jacob to have a character that differs from his brother. Do you know, friends, that you were born with the same kind of nature that Jacob had? You were an enemy of God, born to die. You were born deserving his wrath. You say, like Esau, I prefer myself to you. And even as a Christian, even now, you and I confirm that over and over again. What I want, Lord, we say, is so much more than what you want. So much more important to me 
what my desires are, my needs are. And even you, stained in self, God has said in his merciful grace, I set my love on this one. I set my love on this one until they reflect perfectly the image of Jesus Christ, their older brother. There is nothing to separate Jacob from Esau. Same family, same background, same ancestor, same messed up situation. In fact, he's less because he's the younger. But what does God do? He chooses the weak. He chooses the despised. He chooses the foolish. He chooses the pathetic. And he said, in my mercy, I reach out to you. I call you. God loved. Not because Jacob is lovely. A lady once came to Charles Spurgeon and said, hey, Pastor Spurgeon, I always had a problem with the doctrine. This, this, this view of uh, Jacob I love, Esau I hated. Spurgeon said, me too. I can't believe it. And she said, how can God say Esau I've hated? Spurgeon said, that's the easy part. I've never understood. How could God say Jacob I've loved? Jacob I've loved. Do you know that that's the reality for you if you're a Christian? That God said, you I love. Do you marvel at that? Does that stir your soul? It ought to, friends, that God chooses undeserving wretches to be his family. That God does not pick winners. He picks losers. Do you know that about yourself? He, he loves to pick losers. That's the requirement. You've got to be a loser. Do you know that about yourself? And if you do, do you know that Christ has given all of his inheritance? He has given his birthright as the very son of God. He has given his birthright as the only begotten Son of God, and He has given it up for you. He has done something far more marvelous than Esau ever did. He gave up. He was willing to be born of a woman. He who was infinite was willing to become finite. He who was the author of life was willing to become dead as a doornail, as a criminal, that you might be grafted in and receive the inheritance that you do not deserve. But now he calls you his brother. Now he calls you his son. Praise be to our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do call us into your family, that you set your love upon us, though we are not worthy of it, that you give us a far better inheritance than Jacob got. And you do so not because we are lovely, but because of your marvelous grace. May that strengthen us this hour and this week to serve you and to love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.